Hey, Unfold fans. Welcome to a new season of episodes. This time, we also have a new co-host. It's Kat Curlin. Hey, Amy. Kat joins us also from our news team here at UC Davis. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks, Amy. She brings with her a wealth of experience covering the environment, which is great for this season of Unfold because we're focusing on what one could argue is the biggest challenge facing the world right now, and that's climate change. (laughs) Whoa, I could have sworn you were going to say coronavirus. No doubt coronavirus is at the top of everyone's mind. It seems a never-ending challenge, but Kat... As we all know, climate change hasn't stopped just because so many of us are still sheltering in place or at least avoiding crowds. In fact, one of our researchers here at UC Davis put it this way. We have a viral crisis right now, but the climate crisis isn't going away. And who was that? That was Fraser Schilling with the UC Davis Road Ecology Center. I interviewed him via Zoom from my closet during the beginning of the virus when practically everything was shut down. The closet, you know, it seemed like a safe space, and it still seems like a safe space. Ah, yes. Fraser released a study that showed all those stay-at-home orders resulted in a huge decrease in traffic and greenhouse gas emissions, which are, of course, the gases that cause climate change. You can read about that report on our science and climate website, climatechange.ucdavis.edu. Nice plug, Kat. I try. But that study highlights an interesting point. There is a connection between coronaviruses and climate change. There is. And we're going to have more on that study in a moment because in this episode of Unfold, we're going to be looking at the connections and similarities between climate change and COVID-19. To name just a few, they're both huge global problems. They both affect the world's most vulnerable populations. They both involve bending or flattening a curve. And dare I point out all of the negative similarities? It's hard to stop you from pointing out the negative, Amy. You're right. Both crises also show us how inadequately prepared we are for disasters, how we politicize or flat out deny the science, and how bad we are at anticipating the consequences of our own actions. How's that? Is that negative enough? I could go on. (laughs) No, you can stop. We're also going to talk about the lessons we've learned, at least so far, from this pandemic that might help us in the fight against climate change. Climate models all agree that temperatures are going to increase. It's going to be hotter. It's going to be drier. Fire's going to burn more frequently. Maybe this is never going to be the way it was again. We need to come up with ways to literally pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. How are we going to work together to solve a challenge like climate change? Coming to you from our closet studios as we shelter in place across the Sacramento region, this is Unfold, a UC Davis podcast that breaks down complicated problems and discusses solutions. This week, we unfold climate change and COVID. I'm Amy Quinton. And I'm Kat Curlin. So, Kat, let's just bring people up to speed on what a wonderful world it's been since our last episode of Unfold launched last year. Ah, yes. 2020 got off to a great start. Right. I was busy writing all these fascinating stories about climate change for this upcoming season. I even traveled to Africa in January to cover some of our research going on there. And I get back and I hear this. A new virus appeared in the Chinese city of Wuhan last month. And from there, as you know, it escalates. 
Autopsies show that two people who died in Santa Clara County on February 6th and the 17th tested positive for the virus. How many Americans will die from COVID-19? At this point, we just don't know. He held a rally. He didn't mention the virus during his speech. And in a local TV interview that night, he said, I think it's going to work out fine. That testing number may sound high to some. It is low to many others and certainly to me. To have this happen over this weekend is really, really especially tragic. And they are all in our thoughts and prayers. Because this virus is new to science and new to humans, we have no idea how long immunity is going to last. As we know, supply chain issues have made it difficult to have the proper protective gear. And some fear the administration might cut corners to meet that ambitious schedule as a way to gain a political advantage. Attendance will be limited and everyone will be required to wear masks. We all know that climate change did not cause COVID-19, but certain human actions on this planet are creating a world where pathogens like coronaviruses are more likely to spread. That's right. Both climate change and habitat destruction can make animals and humans more susceptible to infectious diseases, while also bringing animals into closer contact with humans. So you might ask, how can this happen? How can climate change lead to the spread of viruses or other types of pathogens in animals or humans? I talked to Tracy Goldstein about this. She's the associate director of the One Health Institute at UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. She led a 15-year climate change study that found that the melting of Arctic sea ice unleashed this deadly virus for marine mammals in the North Pacific. It's called Phocine distemper virus, or PDV, and it was found in sea otters, northern fur seals, and stellar sea lions. The virus itself isn't new. It's part of the same genus of viruses that cause distemper in dogs and measles in humans. PDV also has been in marine mammals before, but only in the Atlantic Ocean, not in the Pacific. And Tracy says it's deadly, particularly for harbor seals. Harbor seals are really, really susceptible. And in fact, in 1988 and 2002, this virus was estimated to kill about 50% of the population in harbor seals. So very, very easy to, to transmit between animals and just huge mortality rates. So the concern was that we suddenly saw this virus in the Atlantic, you know, moving to the Pacific into an area where we know they are potentially really susceptible populations that have never seen that virus. And so we wanted to try to understand, was it circulating? How susceptible were animals? Was it causing deaths? So researchers began to examine the differences between the outbreak in 88, when the virus did not show up in the Pacific, and in 2002, when it did. And the difference was in 88, there was really good ice cover in the Arctic and likely not channels for um, animals to move. But in 2002, there was really one of the first really dramatic years, if you take a look at the sea ice data, of a huge reduction in sea ice. And um, since that time, we've seen that in many other years. Their analysis found infection peaked in 2002 and 2003 and then again in 2009. And the two things that were consistent both those years was the ice channels were open in sort of the year before when we saw the peak. And the concern is now is in since 2008, really, there's been open channels in the ice every single year since that time. And that raises a lot of concerns, not just for animals, but for humans, too. Right, because we're talking about landscapes changing on a massive scale. Tracy mentioned to me that with less Arctic sea ice, ships can now reach places they haven't been before. And we've deforested large swaths of land as our population expands. 
And all of this is bringing more people into contact with wild animals. That can change the distribution of viruses and bacteria. The contact between people and animals is changing. It's becoming more frequent. It's becoming more intense. And because of that, I think that's what's leading to these um, spillovers and potentially more of them more frequently. What scares me, Kat, is the potential for zombie viruses. <laughs> what? Yeah, scientists actually call them that. As the Arctic warms twice as fast as the rest of the world, the ground, you know, the permafrost, is starting to thaw. It could unleash all sorts of microbes and viruses and revive long-dead diseases. Some of the bodies of the 1918 flu pandemic are buried there. Of course, we don't know if any of the viruses can survive, but I read that the bacteria anthrax can survive, as well as tetanus and botulism. And then there are all those viruses that we've never heard of. Sheesh, great. There you go again. Miss Negative. Sorry. Well, another negative and another link between climate change and COVID is the people who are affected the most. Right. We saw with the coronavirus that in most communities, the poor, the elderly, people of color were the people most affected by COVID-19. I knew ahead of time who was going to be the population's most at risk. That's Helene Margolis, an associate adjunct professor in medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine at UC Davis. She's also with the John Muir Institute of the Environment. She expanded on who she thought would be most at risk. Turns out it's the same populations that are most vulnerable to climate change. Underserved and under-resourced communities. Unfortunately, in this country, it's most often people of color. The elderly and the individuals who do not have access to health care, who live in communities where they don't have basic resources in terms of food even, are at greater risk, and there's a much greater preponderance of these chronic health conditions, the cardiovascular, diabetes, obesity, and respiratory, that put them at higher risk, both of a climate change-related exposure and of a COVID-19. So how is it that climate change puts these populations at risk? Most greenhouse gas emissions are from combustion sources, vehicles, power plants. It's not just greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. It's also the air pollutants that we already know have adverse effects on health in terms of our lungs, our cardiovascular systems. And it's not just the acute exposures. It's this chronic exposure. So people who live in highly polluted places have damaged lungs and damaged cardiovascular systems due to those air pollutants. Let's face it, the neighborhoods next to busy highways and industrial polluters are poor neighborhoods. It's all connected. And so Helene says if we can ease climate change, we can also ease some of these health conditions. In other words, there are co-benefits. If we address the greenhouse gases and reduce vehicle miles traveled, reduce our reliance on carbon-producing fuels, and if we could switch to renewables, we're going to have less air pollution. And I'm talking at the street level where people are exposed. Did she say how to go about doing that? She says it starts with making communities healthier and more resilient to climate change. If you create a healthier community 
where you address these weaknesses or the vulnerabilities, and they're basically called the social determinants of health, where you look at access to care, healthy food, opportunities for physical activity, safe, stress-free environments. So overall, creating living conditions that are better. And much of the efforts around the world, but also here in California, to address climate change and vulnerabilities is building sustainable communities that also address health promotion, preventing these basic chronic diseases. Of course, that sounds pretty difficult. Well, at least we got a break from air pollution and greenhouse gases during those stay-at-home orders. Right. And we said at the top of this episode that we were going to talk about Fraser Schilling's study that looked at greenhouse gases during the initial phase of the virus. And what he found was all those shelter-in-place orders went a long way. So across all the states, the reduction was 60 to 90 percent reduction in driving. Collectively, there was a 71 percent reduction for the whole U.S., in calculated greenhouse gas emissions. It did vary state by state, but it is pretty remarkable that the vast majority of people were following the stay-at-home guidance and not driving. Important to point out, I talked to him in May, and the figures were up until mid-April at that point. But still, vehicle miles traveled dropped from 103 billion miles to 29 billion during the second week of April. We exceeded our past Paris Climate Accord commitments by at least twofold. So we met our 2020 goal in eight weeks. But, but, you know there's a but. It was an eye-opening change, but very short-lived, right? Not a permanent change. In fact, when I talked to Fraser the first time in May, some places were starting to open back up, and he was already seeing traffic pick back up. Yesterday, I would have said, optimistically, we will retain some of this, right? But today I got the data across quite a few counties across the U.S. It was an almost doubling in driving compared to the four previous weeks. And Kat, more bad news. We now know it's almost returned to normal in almost every state. Yep. People were itching to get out. Most people. But still, you have to think some of it will stick. It seems to stick only when there are stay-at-home orders. But driving less is an important part of reducing greenhouse gases, particularly in this country where transportation accounts for 29 percent of those emissions. Yeah. And in California, transportation accounts for like 40 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions. Right. But whether our reduced driving was really a success in terms of climate change, well, that's debatable, right? Millions of people are out of work, which no one wants to see. And really, it shouldn't take a pandemic to get people to drive less. Some people who used to take public transportation are driving their cars for safety reasons. So now COVID-19 is causing some people to drive more and take mass transit less. Right. It's depressing. So I talked to climate scientist Ben Holden about all of this. That's great. Ben is like one of the most optimistic climate scientists I've ever met. Well, he's an affiliate faculty member here at UC Davis, and he put our reduction in greenhouse gases due to COVID into some real perspective. If you look at the emissions reductions that are estimated for this year based on the recent data, we might anticipate an 8% drop in global emissions, largely from transportation. Well, that's an incredible drop, a drop we haven't seen before, perhaps since a human started emitting carbon pollution to the atmosphere. 
And yet, what does that really look like? Well, the atmospheric concentration of CO2 is about 414 parts per million right now. And that 8% drop will not even show up as a detectable change in that concentration. Why do I not find this surprising? Oh, but wait, it gets worse. There you go again. Not me, Ben Holton. In fact, estimates are we would need to see at least a 25% emission reduction to detect 0.2 per per million change or reduction in atmospheric CO2. And ultimately, the curve we have to bend is atmospheric CO2. Yep, I'm depressed. Me too. But wait, he goes on. And you thought I was negative. We can't just cut emissions anymore for decades and expect CO2 concentrations to drop to a level that no longer causes massive human suffering on the planet. Massive human suffering, Cat. He says even if we cut all transportation emissions on the planet, we still have 80%, 80% of the rest of the worldwide emissions to take care of. People talk a lot about flattening the curve for COVID and then even bending the curve. Well, that analogy actually goes back to the climate challenge and what scientists have been talking about for decades of bending the curve, flattening the curve and bending the curve. And we are seeing that collective human action can flatten and bend a curve. Well, that was short-lived, at least here in the States. But flattening the curve seems to be an even bigger hurdle for climate change. Did he suggest how to do that? Well, I asked him that. We need to grab CO2 from the air. And that's something that humanity has never done before. We have to pull CO2 out. So in other words, we can't just reduce emissions anymore. It won't be enough. We have to reduce emissions and capture carbon. That means things like restoring forests so that they absorb CO2, carbon farming, which restores soil and natural and agricultural lands, and even using newer technologies that physically capture CO2 and store it underground. The list of ways to capture carbon is long. I actually get excited when I think about the enormity of the challenge now. And that makes Ben very different from me. I get depressed by the challenge. Well, climate science isn't really where most of us go for our warm fuzzies. I mean, think about it. People clearly are not staying at home, even in counties that are seeing a surge in coronavirus cases, even though thousands of people are dying. Now we have to convince people that we need to collectively find large-scale solutions to capture carbon so that maybe we can realize benefits three decades from now. It is a heavy political lift, requiring much more than wearing a mask. Yeah, and speaking of politics, one thing that is perfectly clear during this pandemic is how political it is. Yeah, some politicians began to question and deny the science, which has happened repeatedly when dealing with the climate change crisis. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. Hi, I have a medical condition that I'm not allowed to wear a mask and I'm not required by HIPAA rules and regulations to disclose that. And isn't the herd immunity essential to ultimately getting rid of this virus until at the very least we get a vaccine? Is the science even settled? There's so much research that says that we actually are in danger of having this mask. I'm breathing my own CO2. Do you understand that? Look at all of these sheep that are here all wearing this mask. It's actually dangerous for them and it's doing nothing for them. A 99% survival rate and you're all wearing masks like sheep. Whatever. Details. Shut up. Really, these masks are actually creating even more havoc than 
than violating the Constitution, but actually causing direct harm in people's lives by incentivizing bullying and harassment. It's terrible. So either wear the mask. And I'm not doing it because I woke up in a free country. I think you'll see by June a lot of the country should be back to normal, and the hope is, is that by, by July uh, the country's really rocking again. Here's what Ben had to say about all of that. As somebody who has worked in climate for, well, almost two decades now, I can tell you that what I'm seeing in terms of the politicizing of this epidemic is completely unsurprising to me. I have learned talking to people that you can give them any form of data, no matter how strong it is, on climate change. And if they're in denial, they will basically push that data away with no problem. And it's a form of denial that is as deadly as other forms of denial. And I think we're seeing that right now. And when it comes from the top down, it's even more difficult to deal with. Epidemiologists, on the other hand, were caught off guard. I asked Tracy Goldstein what she thought about some of the science denial. I have been really surprised by that because I feel like this is a public health emergency. This is the time for the world to unite and support each other and have the best information that we can together to answer a question and a problem versus making it into some sort of political thing that I, j I just, I don't understand. I feel like this is a time for unity, not separation. So did Ben have words of advice for epidemiologists or any theory as to why this happens? Yeah, he explained the reason science denial happens during the pandemic is the same reason it happens when dealing with climate change. When special interests in large conglomerates stand to lose money by the solutions, misinformation and disinformation are very soon to be uh, spread. And we're seeing the same thing with COVID-19. If it hadn't caused a radical reduction in our economy and our economic output in approximately 30 million people maybe going unemployed, I don't think we'd be seeing the same level of science denial that we're seeing. But here's the thing. To deny a problem exists doesn't make it go away. And I think we have a huge lesson to learn from how we've handled this pandemic, especially as it relates to how we handle the climate crisis going forward. And Ben agreed with me. If you don't prepare in advance, the impacts on the economy, on people, on the planet are magnified in the future. And in climate, it's, it's something on the order of an estimated 20 trillion dollars of economic damages as we start to experience dangerous climate interference in the future that can be avoided if we start investing today. Yeah, in the climate science world, people talk about mitigation, which is preventing it, and adaptation, preparing to deal with the changes that come. And I, th I think there's some similarities with that in the pandemic. So maybe a lesson is to spend more money on preparing for a pandemic and also have a better national stockpile of masks and protective gear and ventilators, or also some more funding to detect emerging diseases. And more mass testing. You know, epidemiologists, as you know, Kat, have always warned of a coming pandemic. They knew this day would come. And in the same way, we know there will be huge economic losses from coming climate disasters. So the time to prepare is now. And the poor, people of color, the elderly, the disadvantaged, they will be affected the most. So we can work on those disparities. There is one huge difference, though, between the climate crisis and the COVID crisis. Yeah, what's that? Well, eventually, we will have a vaccine for COVID-19. There is no vaccine or silver bullet solution for climate change. Well, there's not a silver bullet, but Ben and many experts who we're going to hear from during this season of Unfold are going to talk about the many ways to become more resilient in the face of climate change. 
You can find out more about UC Davis climate change research by visiting our Unfold website at ucdavis.edu slash unfold or our science and climate website at climatechange.ucdavis.edu. I'm Amy Quinton. And I'm Kat Curlin. Thanks for listening. Unfold is a production of UC Davis. It's produced by Cody Drabble. Original music for Unfold comes from UC Davis alumnus Damian Verrett and Curtis Jerome Haynes.